And Father in heaven, we, um, as we approach this Christmas season, many of us are going to be traveling this week, and we are going to be going various places across this country, maybe across this world. And God, we, we ask for safety in those things. And, and we're, we're going back maybe and, and seeing a family, we're seeing friends, we're seeing old classmates, uh, maybe people who uh, have lost the way of Christ or have never known the way of Christ. And, and we have an opportunity to speak the truth of Christ. And so we pray, Father, that as you spread us out, that we would be those who are going on mission and that we would bring the hope of the gospel and truly, as, as, as trite as it becomes, the reason for the season to those that we have missed and those we have longed for. Many of us are going to stay, Father, and, and we're going to be around coworkers and we're going to be around neighbors who don't feel this as a, a time of hope, but a time of hopelessness because they do not have the Prince of Peace and the King of Hope, Jesus Christ. And we pray that even as we stay, we might go with our lips and our mouths and with hands of service to reach our neighbors. Father, we pray this morning for the nation of Venezuela. Um, we do not forget that we have brothers and sisters across this globe, and we pray for them to have the same sort of commitment to gospel fidelity that even we pray for ourselves this morning. We pray uh, for those Christians who might be tempted there uh, by the occult and by witchcraft, um, that they might not be lured into it uh, because it is popular or because it is uh, part of the heritage but they would stand strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ, fearing no power or principality, and showing their neighbors that there is a greater power who rules a slain lamb on a throne. We pray, Father, that you would raise up a gospel movement in Venezuela that, that so sanctifies a church there for Jesus Christ that it begins to ebb away at the corruption and the failed economic policies and the poor leadership that has caused so many to suffer there and may their faithfulness magnify Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would hear your word even as we move into the Christmas season and we hear the stories that we have heard so many times before, would they move us fresh that we might know you more and honor you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, if you would, uh, verses 18 through 25. We are starting a bit of a Christmas series here for the next three Sundays after this Sunday and today. I'll say more about that in a minute, but for right now, let's just turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Joseph. 
son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, welcome to the third week of Advent. Advent is a traditional celebration among Christians going back centuries upon centuries. We don't really know when they first started celebrating it. But do you know what Advent is about? How many of you long for Christmas, for Christmas to come? Maybe you have memories of it as a kid waiting with anticipation and anxiousness, wondering what good things might be in store. That, I mean, that's at least the classic picture of an American Christmas, and I hope you had at least some experience like that. I'm certain you probably did at least a little bit. I guess I hope more that the anticipation and expectation paid off on Christmas morning, maybe a little bit. But waiting for that big day and all of that excitement, all of its surprises, the food, the fun, the laughter, the waiting is the hard part, isn't it? Christians are people of Christ. We are Christians. So our beliefs have a lot to do with this one that we call Christ. The title Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one. It was a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah. And for centuries, God's people had waited for a Messiah, a figure that was promised through prophets and hinted at from the earliest books of the Bible. We just finished a series on Genesis, and it's all through Genesis pointing, that very first book of the Bible, to this figure. God's people had longed for the advent of the Messiah, his arrival, his coming. And we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, was that Messiah. During his time on earth, Jesus taught his followers that he would return. And it was the hopeful expectation of his earliest followers and repeatedly written about in the books of the New Testament that he would come again. And so we live in an in-between time. The Messiah came, and the Messiah is yet coming. And during Advent, Christians reflect on this anxious anticipation of God's ancient people as they waited for the advent of the Messiah, even as we remember to wait patiently for his second advent. At times, we too share a holy and anxious anticipation for his coming. And even though Christmas has certainly become a commercial success and nearly a secular holiday, there is still maybe something a little appropriate about children stirring, keeping their emotions in check as Christmas 
draws near. After all, on Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, the birth of the Messiah. And when we wait for Christmas expectantly, we are reenacting something of our Jewish forebears who longed to see Christmas, the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And it reminds us of the sort of attitude that we should have toward Jesus' return, his second coming. But why? Why is this Messiah so important? That's what we want to explore this Advent season. We'll spend two Sundays, this and next, uh, exploring why the Messiah came. And then we'll spend two Sundays after Christmas exploring why the Messiah is coming again. So why did the Messiah come? And this passage tells us one reason. He came to save It tells us more than that. Specifically, it tells us what he came to save us from. It hints at why that saving is necessary, and it tells us who that saving is for. What, why, who. So that's that's my outline. This is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. I've preached from this passage before, or a subset of it, probably on more than one occasion. People like to hear the Christmas message at Christmas. But there are so many angles in every passage of Scripture. And there's so much to mine. You probably are already familiar with this passage then. You've heard it read or quoted this time of year. The quotation from Isaiah in the Old Testament often finds its way onto Christmas cards and decorations. But let's give a little bit of background here. The beginning of this chapter, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, which Molly read in part last week, uh, tells the story of the ancestry of Joseph back to King David. And that's important because the king in ancient Israel was anointed with oil. When he was named as king, they anointed his head with uh, probably olive oil as a symbol of God's blessing and, and the Spirit of God being upon him for that work. And so the king was an anointed one, a Messiah. And David became a pattern for the coming of an anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would reign not just over Israel, but over the world. And the Jews were looking for a Messiah from the line of David. Joseph is from that line. But there's a problem. He is betrothed to a woman named Mary, who comes up pregnant. And in the ancient world, a betrothal was like an engagement, except that it was legally binding. So imagine if when the guy asks the the gal to marry him, And she says, I do. Then he pulls a piece of paper out of his pocket and says, okay, let's put that in writing. Sign here. And I have a notary over here. And now this is set. There's no take backs. There's no no whoopsies here. This is a final decision. That's basically what a betrothal was. And now she's pregnant. And, And so there's really... Only one reasonable conclusion in 
a, a society that had uh, very consistent views about premarital sex and about the seriousness of a betrothal and the fidelity that was expected during that time period. If Mary is pregnant and Joseph hasn't been with her, then she would appear to have been unfaithful to him. Ancient Jews followed the, the same teachings as traditional Jewish authorities today and traditional Christian authorities today uh, that divorce was generally frowned upon. It was generally seen as something that we avoided at all possible costs. But there were some exceptions where it could be countenanced better than other situations, and one of those situations was infidelity. And so Joseph has permission, you might say, to divorce this woman. After all, she's been unfaithful to him by his estimation. But he makes a decision to do so quietly, it says. Which is to say, he wants to keep it kind of hush-hush. Now, it might have looked better for Joseph if everyone knew that he had not broken his vows, this legally binding pledge. But it definitely would have looked much worse for Mary. She was, or she would have been marked as herself a scandal and likely would have brought shame to her entire family. And no doubt a scorned man would have a reason, maybe to get a little revenge, but Joseph didn't feel that way. And so he plans to divorce her quietly so that she didn't take on any unnecessary social stigma. And that's when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream to tell him to push on with the marriage. Mary had not been unfaithful, the angel says, but this came about because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph trusts in the word of God spoken by the angel, marries Mary, and raises the boy. In a way, he follows the footsteps of Abraham, who we talked about last week, who became a paradigm for what faithfulness looks like. God intervenes, and then man takes God at his word. So God has interrupted Joseph's life with some very shocking news, and Joseph takes God at his word. And in this turn of events, the angel tells Joseph to name the child Jesus, which he obediently does. And why? Well, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, in, it's the English form of Jesus from Latin and Greek, which was their rendition of the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Savior. Or maybe Yah saves, Yah being a shortened form of God's name, Yahweh. And so the angel wanted Joseph to call the child Savior because that's exactly what he would be, a Savior. The angel tells us why this descendant of David, the Messiah, was coming. He was coming to save. Specifically, the angel tells Joseph that he will save from something. He will save from sins. And so that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the Christ, the Messiah, coming to save from sin. Now that might lead you to more questions. And that's understandable. Like, what are sins? Because that's a loaded word, isn't it? 
that's a list of to-dos and, and don't-dos on someone's list, and, and somebody else has a stricter list, and somebody else has a looser list, and really isn't that just about a bunch of guilt and shame anyway? Let's start with what sin is not. I don't think it's helpful to think about sin usually as specific actions, because very few specific actions that we take are sins in themselves. Why is that? That's the case because God created the world, and he created it good, and he made human beings to reflect him by exercising good stewardship over all of creation, subduing it and bringing its chaos into a curated, good, and useful paradise. Sin is almost always taking something that God has given for good and violating its intended purpose or otherwise dishonoring him with it. So God gives us breath and gives us speech. But when we use that speech to lie or to manipulate or to abuse, that's a sin. God gives us plants and seeds and uh, fungi, but when we use them to twist our senses so that we cannot perceive his good creation and respond to him, that's sin. Now, sin isn't always action. It can be thoughts. But what these things have in common, though, is that they dishonor God by either neglecting him or not showing him his true worth. As, as Greg uh, prayed this morning for us in, in confessing our sins, that there's all these things that we prefer over God. And when we prefer something over God, that is sin. To show God his proper worth is to worship God, to worship God. That's where that word comes from. And it's a very appropriate origin story for that word. We tend to think of worship as that thing we do on Sunday mornings, or maybe it's a, something we do in a temple or something we do in a mosque. Um, some may just think about worship as singing religious songs, but at its heart, worship is about honoring God by giving him what he is worth. And when we fail to honor God the way he deserves, and we all do that, that's sin. So I don't think it's helpful to think about sin in terms of specific actions as much as the question of are we giving God the worth that he is owed? And that's why the Messiah came. He came to save from sin. But why did he come to save from sin? Why do we need a saving from that? I already said it's something we all do. Why do we need to be saved from something we all do? One thing we do is breathe. We all breathe. We said that sin can be thought of something uh, like using something God gave us for good and twisting it outside of its intended purpose. Suppose all of us, the, the entire planet of people, poisoned the atmosphere with nitrogen. Now, nitrogen makes up about 78% of our atmosphere as it is. That's normal. Mixed with oxygen, ratios are perfectly safe. But if we bump that up from about 78% to about 85% nitrogen, 
we'd find ourselves getting tired very quickly. Our decision-making would become impaired. We would become emotionally unstable. Some of the weaker among us would begin to die, and our impaired judgment and poor emotional states would no doubt lead to increasing numbers of casualties just from breathing, just from doing something good that God gave us to do. But because we were breathing improperly, we would need to be rescued from that set of circumstances. We would need to be saved. So Matthew writes in this passage that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew's quoting the book of Isaiah, as Gloria read this morning. And if you go back and you read Isaiah, you'll be a bit surprised, maybe, about what's going on. What's the context for which these words are spoken? Did you pick it up as she read? See, it comes early in the reign of King Ahaz of Judah, the 10th great-grandson of King David. It's about the year 732 BC. And, and the nations surrounding Judah were at war or near to being at war with the mighty uh, kingdom of Assyria, which was reaching its historical peak. And the Assyrians had conquered some large swaths of territory, and they were headed toward the Mediterranean Sea. And some nations wanted Ahaz and Judah to join forces against Assyria, and Ahaz didn't go for it, so those nations are now threatening to overthrow Ahaz. And they want to put a little bit more agreeable king, an ally, on the throne in his place. And Isaiah, God's prophet, comes to Ahaz to tell him, to tell this young king that God would protect him and God would protect the people. These threats would not come to pass, but Ahaz needed to trust God and not his own wisdom and political calculations or the strength of his allies. In fact, Isaiah said God wanted him to ask for a sign, any sign, anything at all, to confirm the truth of what he was saying. Assyria was a major superpower. And he might need a big sign to be convinced of this truth. But Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign, displaying maybe a sort of false religiosity. Ahaz was a pretty evil dude. He was not a very faithful guy. Some have speculated that maybe he didn't want to seem like he was coming under the prophet's authority. But whatever the reason was, he gives this false pretense of being holy and says he couldn't dare ask God for a sign. But God was the one telling him to ask for a sign. His refusal was a rejection of God's command. So God gives him a sign anyways, in a manner of speaking. I'll come back to that in a minute. What did Ahaz wind up doing in the end? Well, instead of allying Judah with these other nations against Assyria, he links forces with Assyria. He rejects God's command to trust him alone and not other nations. And God does spare Judah from destruction, as he promised. But Judah was terribly weakened, and the alliance with Assyria meant that the kingdom of Judah was a subject of Assyria under Tiglath-Pileser III. And to make that deal, Ahaz removed 
the gold, the silver, the valuable treasures from God's temple in Jerusalem and presented them to the king of Assyria as a gift. He met with the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, in Damascus, Syria. And Ahaz saw a temple there that he liked. Before he returned, he sent instructions to Jerusalem to make modifications of the Jewish temple based on the worship he had seen in Damascus. And it seems like some of those may have come at the direction of the king of Assyria himself. He changed the religious practices of Judah. In fact, he used some of the holy items of the temple as tools for divination and sorcery. And he sacrifices one of his own sons to a pagan god. He becomes a thoroughly despicable ruler who owed his right to rule to a foreign king instead of the king of heaven. But why was Assyria on the attack anyway? I'm sure Assyria had its own motives and strategies, but in God's providence, he says that he was allowing Assyria to conquer some nations that had become thoroughly wicked, nations with whom God's patience had simply run out. And Assyria, whether they knew it or not, was an instrument of God's judgment. Because God is just, sin gets punished. God is patient, and he waits longer than any of us deserve in, in hope that we might turn, that we might change our ways. But eventually, God must also be just, and he will punish sin. If you offend your neighbor, or if you offend the state of Ohio, there is a chance, there is a hope that you might not get found out. Justice might not catch up to you. But if you offend the all-knowing, all-powerful king of heaven, there's no escape. When the long arm of justice is infinitely long, you will be found out. When God gave Ahaz a sign, instead of that sign being a sign of hope, it quickly became a sign of doom. Yes, God would spare Judah from the immediate destruction of Assyria, but the Assyrian presence would lead to a period of terrible misfortune, scarcity, and pain. In fact, the Jewish people never really uh, significantly controlled their own destiny after this point in time, except maybe a few decades before the Romans arrived. They lived under Assyrian powers until Babylon came about. They lived under Babylonian power until Persia came about. They lived under Persian power until uh, Alexander the Great in Macedonia came about. When he died, uh, his, that portion of the kingdom was given over to the Seleucids. The Seleucids of various Greek powers ruled almost up until the point that Rome conquered everything there. The Romes owned that region and controlled that region until the Ottomans. The Ottomans controlled it until the British, and the British... We'll file that under another chapter of hasty British exit leads to mass casualties and war. And sadly, war still ravages that land to this day, and Jerusalem remains a city divided. When the Assyrians were announced by God as a punishment for at least some nation's crimes, we can't 
say with certainty that every war or conflict is precisely God's judgment for this or that. We don't have that right. We don't have that power. We don't have that insight. But what we can say, what the scriptures say clearly, is that sin leads to pain and death. And ultimately, it leads to judgment. And so in the 13th chapter of Isaiah, just a little ways down from this prophecy we read from chapter 7, the prophecy that's quoted in Matthew chapter 1, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And in the 26th chapter, Isaiah prophesies, for behold, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's why sinners need a savior. Even if we all do it, and we do, we all sin, that doesn't make it acceptable, that doesn't make it good, it doesn't make it okay. We wouldn't look around with an entire population breathing high concentrations of nitrogen and call it okay. We would see it as a tragedy and a crisis from which we needed to be rescued, from which we needed to push in all of our resources to find a solution. And in the same way, all sinners, which is all of us, desperately need a rescue before the sword of justice finds us. The angel says that this Jesus, whose name means Savior, would save his people from their sins. Who? His people. Who were this Jesus' people? Joseph might have wondered the same thing. He might have thought, of course, that the angel meant the Jewish people. People. After all, the very beginning of Isaiah's book is a plea from God to the people of Judah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's an offer of hope, of cleansing. But a careful reading suggests that that's not exactly the identity of his people. See, God is pleading with his, the Jewish nation in Isaiah chapter 1 to return to him because as it stands, they have ceased to be his people. As God says there, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Forsaken utterly estranged. That does not sound promising. Who are a king's people? Aren't a king's people the king's subjects? And if the Messiah is a king, then aren't the Messiah's people the Messiah's subjects? Aren't Jesus' people Jesus' subjects? In the reign of King David of Israel, he was attended to faithfully by a man from Cush, probably the region around Sudan. And he had Hittites and Gathites who served loyally in his army. 
Meanwhile, some of his countrymen, including his own father-in-law and his own son, rebelled against him, persecuted him, hated him. Which of these were David's subjects? Wasn't it those who pledged allegiance to David, the king, regardless of their national origin, regardless of their ethnic identity? In the same way, God's true people are the people of his Messiah, his King Jesus. Those who worship him and obey him are his people. Does that sound odd that we should worship and obey a man? Shouldn't we worship God alone? But what were the angel's words? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, this Hebrew, im is with, Emmanuel, with us, el, God, with us is God, or God with us. Jesus would be known as Emmanuel. He would be known as God with us. Why? Because he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Mary's miraculous pregnancy that didn't require any help from a man was not just a neat trick. It was a sign that the child that she carried was himself in some way divine. Another follower of Jesus, a man named John, put it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was his descriptive name for Jesus. and He had already said the word was God. The word was God, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul, another follower of Jesus, wrote that Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, in the sense of being held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men. There's a mystery here that God is both one and he's both three. There is one God who has revealed himself as three persons who are coexistent, co-eternal. And it's not an easy thing to grasp. Maybe we can't fully grasp it. But then again, I don't think that a God that my mind can fully grasp is a God worthy of my worship. Now, I bring that up because it's important to know that when you get a few chapters later in Matthew 17 and Jesus ascends on a mountain with a few of his followers and God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Obey him. God the Father tells these men to listen to, to obey King Jesus. In ancient Israel, the original plan was not a kingship. It was not a dynasty. God's people were supposed to have God himself for their king. But they rejected him over and over And when they finally demanded a king like all the other nations on earth had kings, God finally gave them a human king. But even then, the king was really supposed to be something of a proxy for God. God would be their king. Yahweh would be their king. And this earthly king would be a a prince, a vice-regent, 
a man who would carry out God's good rule on God's behalf. Sort of compromising with a broken and wicked people. But sin and treachery continued to sabotage the plan. So when God pleads in Isaiah chapter 1, come, let us reason together, it is a plea that the people would recognize him again as their true king, their ultimate allegiance. Not Assyria, not Ahaz, not even David, but God himself. Ultimately, only God himself is an adequate king. And in the person of Jesus, God showed himself to be the king that he always was. At Christmas, we celebrate the Messiah, the king who came. He came to save. And he came to save from what? He came to save from sin. Why? Because sin brings death and judgment that we all then fall under. And who is that salvation for? It's for his people, his subjects. And the call now goes out beyond the borders of Judah to the world to say, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, behold, they will be white as snow. He comes to offer you the opportunity to obey him, to recognize him as the proper king of this world. And so find hope and peace by having our sins forgiven. How does Jesus do that? How does Jesus save us from our sins? Well, that's a question for next week. But I'll tell you some good news. He does it. And he invites all people everywhere, Jew, Palestinian, American and Canadian, Japanese and Korean, to give obedience to the king who was born on that first Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have borne with us patiently in all the ways that we have rebelled against you by taking the good things of your creation and stretching them, twisting them, and manipulating them into perverted, distorted, twisted illusions that no longer resemble their intended function, their intended purpose, that no longer are used to honor the one who made them and gave them to us. And yet here we are. You have not found uh, yourself needing to remove us, and we are thankful for your patience with us. Would you give us a heart, Father, to give honor to King Jesus?
to see him as the beloved son who we must obey. To recognize him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And to remember even now, even in the midst of all of the noise of this season, that he came to save his people from their sins. And in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship King Jesus with our song.